Amen. Well, I recognize that there are some, some of you who have not been with us the last couple of weeks, and that's okay. We'll do a little bit of review here uh, from where we've been. So last week, we looked at days one through three of creation, and we saw there in those three days that God created and established three realms. And as creator, the Lord was revealing to us that he is Lord over all three of those realms. And those three realms were lightness and dark, the heavens above and the seas below, and the land of the earth. See three? Okay? So on days four through six, the way that Moses has structured Genesis is so that we would see that on these next three days, God fills those realms, each according to the day that they were created. So God fills these realms and he places rulers over these realms. And those rulers will be subordinate to the crown of creation, humanity, who will be subordinate to God. That's a chain of command. So let's start with day four, and you'll see what I mean as, as we work our way through day four. Day four we'll spend uh, a good amount of time on, and of course day six. But on day four, God fills the realms of light and darkness, day and night. And he assigns rulers over those realms. Look at Genesis 1, verse 14, the first part. And God said that there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. So if you remember back, uh, or if you could look back, on day one of creation, it was God who separated day from night, the lightness from the darkness. God separated the lightness from the dark. But, but now, here on day four, God is creating something else to stand in that place for him. God still upholds the universe by the word of his power. That never, that never ends. That hasn't changed, but now he's creating means through which his power will be shown. These lights will separate day and night. Now look at the second part of verse 14. And let them, those lights, be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now, look, look back to the end of day one again. At the end of day one, it was God who had defined the length of the day because he is the one separating light and darkness and making it either light or dark. Now, just by the way, I have not told you yet how long those days are, and I know you're itching, and if you want to find out, you've got to come back next week, okay? So if, does Dustin believe in a literal 24-hour day? I'll tell you next week. Come next week, because I know that's a burning question all of us have. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the Sabbath day. But anyway, at the end of day one, it was God who was separating lightness from dark. He was the one who had, uh, who had created light, and he was the one separating light and dark. He was the one who made the day. Now, he's creating the lights to serve him. Now, the lights separate the day and the night. Again, creation itself is performing a task for God. But notice also, not only are these lights created to serve God, but they're also created to serve humanity, the humanity that doesn't yet exist. After all, God doesn't need light, does he? When God made it so that the sun and the moon and the stars would follow predictable patterns, and then when he later made us with the ability and the delight in observing those patterns, he was, we understand he was creating those celestial objects for us. The sun and the moon and the stars serve 
as signs for the days, for the years, and the seasons for us. God doesn't need signs to track days and years and seasons, does he? To God, a day is a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. Time passing does not affect God. Animals don't need these signs. Plants don't need these signs. They all just follow the, 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 the created beings that aren't humans. They all just follow their God-given instincts. They know they're looking to the Lord to provide for them. And so he does. We are the ones who need the signs, aren't we? We are the ones who, who celebrate holidays at certain times of year. We are the only created beings interested in marking the passage of time with birthdays and anniversaries. If you, I know some of you might celebrate your dog's birthday, but if you think that your dog cares that you're celebrating his birthday, he doesn't. He's just happy to get the meatball, okay? And, and he, his question is, why don't I get a meatball every day? Why don't I get a meatball at every meal? He doesn't care about a new day coming or whether or not it's his birthday. He's clueless to those things. Only humanity cares about these things. We're the ones who care about days and months and seasons and years. We're the ones who need to know when to plant our crops and when to harvest our crops. We're the ones who need to know how to prepare for winter. More importantly, though, for God's people... And you want to take note of this, because this answers some pretty big theological questions. Look what's happening. But by, by, by God creating the sun and the moon and the stars as signs to mark the passage of time and the days and the months and the years, God is creating the means for his people, Israel, so that they will be able to mark the feasts and the festivals. Passover and tabernacles and jubilee. So if you, you keep reading in, into Exodus, all of those celebrations, all those feasts, they all have days when they're supposed to occur. When does Passover occur? The first month of the year, the 14th day of that first month to the 21st day of that month. And how are those months determined? Well, we saw it in, in Psalm 104. We just sang it as well. They're determined by the phases of the moon put in the sky to mark the months. God, here on day four, has set up a reliable measuring system for people to use. And he did that even before he created people. And he did that knowing that his people would one day need a way to measure time. He did all of that, not just before people, but before the fall of people. Think, think about it this way. You're not quite seeing the significance of this yet. What purpose would Adam, the first man, have in measuring years? He was going to live forever in the presence of God. Fed by the tree of life. If he was going to live that way as he was designed to, he was meant to, then measuring years would be rather meaningless, wouldn't it? Once you get to a million, it, it, it just is kind of meaningless. Every day for Adam is Christmas, because every day is, 
is him living in, the, in God's presence. No one day is, is more special than the next. But if humanity will have to number our days, as the psalmist says, so we may gain a heart of wisdom, then we have to have a way to number our days, don't we? So even before, look what God's doing here, even before there is sin or anyone to sin, God has already created a means through which sinful people will know how to number their days and observe a calendar, and they'll know how to differentiate a work day from a rest day, an ordinary day from a holy day, a holy day where they will celebrate some aspect of God's goodness or forgiveness or provision for them. In other words, look at this on day four. God has written into creation itself the means through which we would know when to celebrate and be reminded of his grace. Before there is man, there is grace. You see that? The sun and the moon and the stars are to be for us reminders that God was planning redemption all along for his glory. So, we could end there, couldn't we? So, so these lights, though, serve God, and they serve humanity. And then look at verse 15, look what God says, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. So they serve God, they serve humanity, and they are created to serve the earth as well. The plants need the light, the fish and the birds need the light, the animals will need this light, and it was so. Verse 16, and God made the two great lights greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Now, there's that ruling function that I told you about. Remember I said he made the, the, four, the three realms and then he put rulers over the realms. Here is the ruler over the day and night, the light and darkness. The sun rules the day, the moon rules the night. And that word rule means rule, to govern. So God... The Most High King has set these governors over the night and day as rulers that are subordinate to him. But because they are not beings, because they're not personal beings, they're, they're inanimate objects, we are reminded here they are not things to be worshipped. They are not gods to be worshipped. They are created things. That's what we're seeing in the way that, that, that God has written this for us. And the reason we know that they're not beings is because they aren't given names. Look at what God calls the lights. Big light, little light. right? The greater light and the lesser light and the stars. Now the Israelites, that, that was not meant, that was not, pun not intended. The Israelites have names for the sun and the moon and the stars. They have that in their language. But God, through Moses, is intentionally avoiding using those names. He's calling it big bright light and little bright light. These lights are created by God. They're not gods in themselves. And the reason he's doing that is because the Babylonians and the Canaanites and the Egyptians, all of these people around the Hebrew people, they believed that the sun and the moon were gods. But what God does here is he takes any notion of divinity away from these created objects by calling them big light and little light. It's almost insulting, isn't it? They are created for a purpose. 
to give light. They are not in and of themselves the source of light. They have no power in themselves. God is the source. Go back to day one if you have questions about that. Only God is to be worshipped. This is radically different than what all of the people around the Hebrews would have understood. In the Babylonian, in the Canaanite, in the, in the, in the Egyptian worldview, the people were created by the gods as servants or slaves to the gods. Okay, But God is saying here, and the way things actually are, God says, I made these objects, the sun and the moon and the stars, to give you light and warmth and to serve as signs and seasons for you. You are not meant to serve these created things as gods. They're not gods. They're lights that serve you. You see that? They're made by God. And though they rule the day and the night, they are created to serve humanity. And if we missed all of that, if we didn't see that just in the way it was written, verse 17 just spells it out for us. Look at verse 17. We'll see three purposes for, the, uh, for the, these lights. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to, one, to give light on earth, two, to rule over the day and over the night, and three, to separate the light from the darkness and in separating, marking the, the days and the seasons. So they are to give, to rule, and to separate. That's what the sun and the moon and the stars are for. They're not to be worshipped. They're for you. The gift to us. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. So day one accords with day four. Light and dark are now filled, and they are given rulers our next few verses, we see that day two, separation of the waters, accords with day five. On day two, God separated the sky from the sea, and now on day five, the sky and the sea are filled. See that? Separate, filled. Same thing, Genesis 1, 20 through 23, God's let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And just as I was reading that, I was just thinking, how many fish were there? Right? You try to go fishing now, and it's... You're not catching. Um, I think then it was a lot different. So anyway, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Now some of you, I, I know you're, we use the ESV Bible here. Um, that's the Bible in the back of your pews. Some of you might be using a New American Standard Bible. You're reading along, and you see where verse 21 says, great sea creatures, and your Bible says, monsters. And you're going, what's going on here? Why does my Bible say great sea monsters? Or your Bible says, or the pastor's Bible says great sea creatures. Well, monsters is actually a very accurate translation. Uh, and this is one of these ongoing subplots to Genesis 1. And we just saw it with the sun and the moon and stars. The, the one true God, this is, this is something, uh, read between the lines that we are to see throughout Genesis 1. The one true God, Yahweh, is greater than all of the false gods. Let me show you what I mean where we're seeing this. The Hebrew word translated here, great sea creatures, is actually tananim. And everywhere else in the Bible that you find that word in Hebrew, 
it is translated as sea monster or sometimes sea dragon. So look at uh, Isaiah 27.1. Even in the ESV, Isaiah 27.1 has it translated this way. For instance, uh, we have Leviathan, who is the great sea serpent, and he's also the great dragon of the sea. Do you see that? In that day, the Lord, uh, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon, Tananim, that is in the sea. See it in Ezekiel 29 as well. In Ezekiel 29.3, the Lord says, Behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon, Tananim, that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. So what's happening there in Ezekiel, Pharaoh was not ruling in, in subjection to the one true God. He, he's ruling as a God in himself, and the Lord is rebuking him. But, but the false God that Pharaoh is being compared to here is that the Tananim, the sea dragon. So what we're seeing here in Genesis on day five not only did God make the waters before the first day, he also separated the waters above from the waters below on the second day, and then he fills them. And he, everything that is in the waters is made by God, including explicitly the Tananim, the great sea dragon or sea creatures or sea monsters or sea, whatever you want to call them. Okay, so if Isaiah says Leviathan is one of these sea monsters, now, let's think back to our reading in Psalm 104, because Psalm 104 is echoing Genesis 1. Psalm 104, here is the great, or here is the sea, great and wide, which teems, swarms, with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships across the sea. It's poetry. And Leviathan, what did Isaiah say Leviathan was? The dragon, which you formed to play in the sea. Who formed it? God did. So in the Hebrew worldview, because of their, their capitulation to, to paganism, Leviathan is, is some sort of enemy. And he doesn't play. He prowls and he devours. But in Psalm 104, the psalmist is saying, no, 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 no. Leviathan's just another sea creature. Made by God. He's nothing to be afraid of. He's certainly not God's rival in any way. Compared to God, he's just a, a diminutive guppy. Splashing around in the water. And that is how the ESV translators got our translation. That's why they call the great sea monster just a sea creature. He's just a big sea creature. Because that's the sense that David gives to this creature in Psalm 104. All right, so that aside, what's the point of all of this? You can probably say it with me by now. God is the only one worthy of worship. That's what we're seeing. God made the oceans, God made everything that is in the oceans, including all of those things in the oceans that some people mistakenly call gods. God made it all. Everything in the seas and the oceans and the rivers has all been made by God. It's all good. God is Lord and King over all of it. He made it all. And look at verse 22. This is even more surprising for those who are afraid of sea dragons. He even blessed it all. So even, even the sea monster receives a blessing. Look at verse 22. And God blessed them, all of them, including the Tananim, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. 
See that? It's good. It receives a blessing from God, and it should multiply. There should be more of it. Now, this is the first blessing that we've seen in the Bible. I don't know if you picked up on that. It's the first blessing we've observed, we've have observed and what is the result of the blessing? Look at that. Fruitfulness, multiplication. Hold on to that. When God blesses the birds and the fishes, he does it so that they will increase in number and fill their domains that God has put them in. The, the sun, moon, and stars, if you're wondering, why didn't they get a blessing? Well, because they don't make extra ones. Uh, they don't receive a blessing because they're not living beings. Their number is fixed. They don't reproduce, okay? But they do fill their realm. The stars particularly fill the night sky. The birds and the fish are given the blessing so that they will fill their realms. Fish belong in the seas. The birds belong in the air. Those are their domains. They will fill them up because they are blessed by God to do so. This is God's good creation. Getting closer. Think of, think of it this way. If, if uh, a couple is having a baby, they're making the nursery for the baby, the crib, and they get the lights. Everything is being set in place for the arrival of the baby. We're getting there. Okay? There was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. So now, they have the heavens filled, skies are filled, the seas are filled. There's one more domain. The land needs filling, doesn't it? So, on the, four, on the third day, God had brought forth the dry land. On the sixth day, which corresponds to the third day, he populates the dry land with animals. And he gives all of that a ruler. Genesis 1, 24 and 25. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, living, or livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. God saw that it was good. Lots of good happening, isn't there? The waters bring forth the swimming things. The air brings forth the flying things. The earth brings forth the crawling. Everything is ready. The nursery is ready. The three domains or the kingdoms are all prepared to welcome the king and the queen. And here we go. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, already this is different than what we've seen anywhere else. This is not like the other days of creation, the other acts of creation. God simply says it and he does it. There's no thinking about it. There's no self-reflection. The creation of light and the expanse and the land and the plants and the fish, that was all almost a little bit impersonal, almost like the, the unfolding of a map. But there's something really intimate here, something personal, very personal about the way that God makes humanity. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Something different is about to happen. God is speaking to someone about it. Or is he? And because of that question, we have to pause for a minute. Okay, so we had to talk about sea dragons. Now we have to talk about the plural here, the first person plural. We talk about grammar a lot in here. One time uh, recently, my daughter said, why is it that pastors are always talking about grammar? <laughs> well, because we're people of the word. This is all we got. So what it says matters. 
Uh, so, so who is the us in the hour here? Why is God using the first person plural when he says, let us make, God in, or make man in our image after our likeness? Well, the first thing that we need to know here is this is not a unique passage. This isn't the only place that this first person plural, God speaking, uh, happens. We see it again right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So right after uh, the, the fall, Genesis 3.22, God says, Behold, man has become like one of us, there's the us, in knowing good and evil. See it again in Genesis 11. Genesis 11 verse 7 at the Tower of Babel incident, God says, Let us go down and confuse their language. And then we keep looking in the Bible and it's in Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, 8, in that heavenly throne room scene where Isaiah is called before the Lord and God is seeking a prophet to speak on his behalf and he asks, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? So I think we can agree on this. Whoever the us is in Isaiah is the same us in Genesis 11, the same us in Genesis 3, and the same us in Genesis 1. But what's happening here? Well, there are a few options that faithful Christians have to choose from. And, and you, you could choose one that you like, and, and I will worship with you, and, and we, we, can, we can work together. Um, this is not something that should divide Christians, okay? So the first interpretation, the first option that we have is to say that God is, is using what we call the royal we, or the, the plural of majesty, like the way that the Queen of England might speak of herself in the plural. I used to work with a guy when I was a police officer who spoke of himself in the plural, and it was weird. I don't know why he did it. He got teased for it. But some Christians believe that God is speaking of himself as king here, because he is in many ways, and kings often speak of themselves in the plural. The only problem with that is that while that does happen in English, it is extremely rare in the language that this was written in, in Hebrew. All right, so it's certainly possible that God was speaking of himself like this. He's God. He can do what he wants. But there would be an exception uh, to the norm for Hebrew grammar. And it would be an exception uh, to the way that God normally speaks of himself in the rest of Scripture. So the second interpretation uh, is what is the more traditional, the classical theist and reformed understanding. So it goes something like this. Because God is triune, right, he's trinity, he speaks of himself in what is known as the plural of fullness. What does that mean? Well, it means this. Even though he hasn't yet revealed to us that he is Father, Son, and Spirit, he speaks of himself as he truly is. After all, we've already been introduced to the Spirit, haven't we? He hovered over the waters. And we know from later on in Scripture that the Son was most definitely present and active in creation. So it would be, according to his nature, his triune nature, for God to speak of himself in the plural. And that's okay. This is certainly the easiest way of understanding this passage. It's the most straightforward interpretation. And again, it's the classical and reformed understanding. But it's not without its own problems, okay? So don't, don't think it's perfect. Because think about this. Throughout the early Throughout Genesis and Exodus, whenever God interacts with Abraham, 
He always uses the first person singular. He doesn't say us. And, and, and perhaps more revealing, when God meets with Moses in the burning bush and gives his name, he does not say, we are who we are. He says, I am that I am. All right, so you can take the Trinity interpretation, and, and that's good. Know that it, there's some questions that you have to deal with. There's a much older interpretation that we need to see as well. And this is the idea that God is speaking to what we call the divine or the heavenly council. And you're thinking, who is that? Who's the heavenly council? Well, we don't know exactly who is on this council in the presence of the triune eternal God, but this, this council includes some sort of created heavenly beings that are not God. All right? So we know that there are some other beings out there that God has made because in Genesis 3, again, when God boots Adam and Eve out of the garden, he says they have become like us in knowing good and evil, and then he takes the cherubim. Who's that? Where'd he come from? Well, it's some heavenly creature that God has made, and he puts that thing in front of the garden. Presumably, this cherubim was created before that day. And he was with God, or it was with God, when God made this pronouncement about the creation of man. We also have to reckon with Psalm 8, which we've been talking about a good bit these last couple weeks. In Psalm 8, we read that mankind, son of man, was created a little lower than the heavenly beings. See that? What is man that you are mindful of him? Son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower. There's a comparison, isn't there? There's a comparison. If mankind is made lower than someone, then there must be some creature to be made lower than. Seems like the heavenly beings, whatever they are, were created before mankind. And you're like, Dustin, you're a liar. Because you said you weren't going to talk about when the angels were made. Well, I kind of am. So let's summarize this then. There are, these are the truths that we can reckon with. There are undeniably some created things that aren't listed in days one through six, but that are spoken of on day six and, and, and uh, in Genesis 3 as well. And as we see later in Scripture, some of those created beings belong to what is known as the heavenly council. Old Judaism, and when I say that, I mean the Judaism of Jesus' day, teaches that God is speaking to those beings when he says, let us make. All right, so how did the, 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 the priests, uh, the preachers of Jesus' day understand this passage? They understood it to mean the heavenly council. So we've got to consider that at the very least. So in summary, yes, God is Trinity. We have to expect to see hints of that all throughout Scripture. Also, we are made in God's image, not in the image of whatever those other things are. But also, yes, there are other things that have been created by God that are not God, but are in his presence, hearing him speak and observing what is happening on earth. Okay? If you want to talk more about this, wait until we get to Genesis 6. Then it's going to get weird. So you have to wait until we get to Genesis 6. But in the meantime, all that to say, the point here is not God's use of the first person plural. We have to talk about it, but that's not the point. Whatever exactly is happening here, God's people knew. I trust that fully, 100%. It was obvious to them. It's not the main point of the text. The creation of humanity 
is the main point of the text. Let's look at that. Humanity, we are made by God. We are made in God's image and likeness. What does that mean? In his image and likeness. Well, there's a lot of questions for that. Um, the text. Image doesn't mean that we look like him. Right? We can agree with that. After all, God is immaterial. He is spirit. We can't look like God. Even the eternal son in the incarnation that we read about in Philippians 2, he humbled himself and took on human form. He wasn't already in a human form, right? He assumed it. Being made in God's image doesn't mean we look like God. And yet there's something about humanity that God has made unique. Something about humanity that, that is different than everything else that he has made. He's, he has imprinted on us and on nothing else something that has a, a godish quality to it, whatever that means. There is something about humanity that is meant to remind us and remind the rest of creation that we uniquely represent God. So, when you see the word image, think representation. Okay? The word image is used a lot in the Old Testament and almost always refers to images of gods, what are also known as idols. So, that's why God, in the second of the Ten Commandments, uh, says, commands his people not to make images of things that are created. Don't make images of created things. Don't make anything to assist you in worshiping God. Why? Because God has put his image on us. And in us, we represent God to one another. We're not to make things to imagine God. God has made us for that purpose. So wherever, we're moving forward, wherever there are humans present, creation is to be reminded of God. God made the image that is to direct all worship to him. We are made for his glory. We're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but the Bible frequently speaks of creation itself as God's temple. So all the universe is his temple, all the cosmos is his temple, the earth is God's footstool. Now, thinking about that terminology, normally in a temple, in a pagan temple, you have the temple structure, you have the building or the monument, and then you have the, the focal point of that monument. And what is it? It's the statue, right? It's the, the model, the image of whatever God, the people that made that temple, are worshiping. What we see in Genesis, though, is that the whole cosmos is God's temple, the earth is the holy place of the temple, and humanity is the image of God placed in the temple. So image-bearing, what it means to be made in God's image, it's not just who we are, it's also our responsibility. There's only one true God. He's entrusted to us, living beings, the culmination, the pinnacle of his creation. He's entrusted to us the responsibility of directing all worship to him. That's what it means to be made in God's image. You're to direct, direct worship to God. Moses also says we're made in God's likeness. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
Likeness means that there is some way that we are like God. Image means we represent him. Likeness means there's some way that we're like him. What ways are we like God? There's quite a few, but there are two in particular that stand out here that will be important for the rest of Scripture. This is the beginning of the rest of Scripture. We see one of those two ways that we are like God in the next sentence. Let us create uh, man in our image and in our likeness, and then, and let them have dominion over the fish and the birds and the livestock and over all the earth. So God right now has dominion over all things, where we are in, in the creation story. He is the one who has dominion over all things. He is God most high. He's creator. He's Lord. He's king over it all. And then he makes humanity like himself and gives dominion to us. So humanity has a likeness to God in our ability to rule, to have dominion. So if that troubles you, think of Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so fast forward to the book of Daniel. We have that story that, that if you've been through Sunday school, you know this story. Nebuchadnezzar was appointed by God to rule, to have dominion, over Babylon. He was given dominion over Babylon, but he was to do so in subordination to the one true God, to point all worship to the one true God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar chose to represent and seek glory for himself, rather than directing worship to God. And what happened? Well, God took his dominion away. And what did that look like? He made him into a beast. He took away his humanness. He took away the likeness of God in him. And in doing so, he took away Nebuchadnezzar's ability to rule, to have dominion. For the second likeness, we have to look way ahead to the second covenant. Uh, Ephesians 4.24 gives us a hint at what the second likeness is. Ephesians 4.24 says, And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, what does that look like? In true righteousness and holiness. So the new man and the new creation is created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. I would argue that the original man was supposed to do this. But for now, I want you to see God created man in his likeness in the sense he's made man with moral capacity. He's made us moral beings. We are to be like God in righteousness and holiness. Well, let's summarize this. As the culminating act of creation, the crowning moment, God creates humanity as his representatives and gives them the ability to rule over all creation with righteousness and holiness. Okay? Let me say it again. Because if you miss this, you're going to miss Jesus. All right? As the crowning moment of creation, God creates humanity as his representatives. And he gives them the ability to rule over all creation with righteousness and holiness. All right? So hold on to that. And let's go on to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now things get a little bit different. Male and female. We haven't seen this yet in, in, in Genesis. We'll talk more about this in chapter 2 because it's really important. But the point here is that the human male and the human female are equally made in God's image. Do you see that? 
They are distinct. It should not be a surprise, but it is. They're distinct. Males are masculine and females are feminine, and yet they are equal. Equal in their image bearing, equal in their likeness to God, equal in their uh, responsibility to represent God and ruling over creation with righteousness and holiness. Now, why did God make them male and female? Because he could have done it differently. But look at verse 28. He tells us why he made them that way. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there it is. The blessing of fruitful multiplication again. And it is directly tied to the creation of humanity as male and female. God could have done this differently. He could have made all of us male. He could have made all of us female. Or he could have done something completely different. He could have made it so that we just split in two. Or three. Or a thousand. Whatever way he chose. But in God's wisdom, in his good plan, he made us male and female And he made sex the the means for human reproduction, the means for multiplication. He created us in such a way that we need one another to fulfill his purpose. And we will see in a couple weeks that marriage is the context for this. That's assumed in this passage. It's made explicit in Genesis 2. But at the essence of maleness is fatherliness doesn't mean that all men have, are fathers, but at their essence is a fatherly quality. At the essence of femaleness is motherliness. does not mean that all women are mothers, but they have a motherly quality about them. Both are necessary to fulfill humanity's role in filling creation and having dominion. To deny the fatherly quality of man or to deny or undermine the motherly quality of woman is to deny God's purposes in creation. Women thus are not birthing persons. They're mothers. It makes sense then that that all of the most destructive ideas fomenting from the pit of hell revolve around the denial of fatherliness and motherliness. From from men abandoning their fatherly duty to their children to the proliferation of, of pornography to homosexuality to transgenderism to whatever abomination is coming next. It is all evil, not because it is yucky, but because it is all a rebellion against God and against His purposes for humanity. God makes humanity in his image and likeness and gives us the responsibility to fill the earth and he gives us a means to do that. The more filling of the earth that humanity does, the more images of God are placed all around the earth. So, the more the earth and all of creation is reminded of God's glory. The more God is glorified in and through creation, and through his image bearers. There is so much more we could talk about this because this is just at the very beginning, and things change, 
in the new covenant. There's another sermon for another day. But I want you to see here that there is a religious element to this, a worship element. Humanity is created with a priestly responsibility in this regard. God created humanity in his image in order that God's name would be made great throughout the earth through his fruitfully multiplying image bearers. There's also a political aspect to this. We have priestly and kingly. As God's representatives, humanity is given the task of subduing. Do you see that in verse 28? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And there are no two ways about this. That is a war term. That is a conquering term. To subdue means to bring into submission. The way that that same word is used throughout the rest of the Old Testament is to tread upon. We are to rule over the earth in a conquering way. We are to have a kingly, exhibit a kingly responsibility. Humanity is to spread God's rule over all the earth. Put it squarely, the kingdom represented by his appointed king, the first man. Okay? That's the way it was supposed to be. That's the way God made it. When God made it that way, look down to verse 31. God saw everything he had made. I'm skipping a little bit here, but God gave all of it the means of living, all of it the means of eating and multiplying. God built into creation the means through which creation would be able to give glory to God through their ruler, mankind. And it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. All very good. What do we see here? The Bible has a very earth-centric view of creation. All this is, you know, we think about all the universe, and we're zooming in to this one little planet. Why? Because the earth is human-centric, anthropocentric. It's all about us, which sounds really selfish, but it's not, because we are to give God glory. That's the Bible's worldview. Modern secularism, the modern worldview, says that that's not true. We're all just accidents of cause and effect. The sun is just one tiny star in a vast universe, maybe in a multiverse, and it's an accidental incident of atoms colliding, causing a chain reaction that goes on and on. And our solar system is just a, a tiny system in a galaxy that goes on and on. And that's just all accidents of history and all that exists. It's all just the eternal functions of matter and energy. Matter and energy are eternal. There's no God. Everything happens not by design, but everything happens because it is inevitable. And that's what happens to humanity in that worldview. When you get to humanity, what are we? We're just deterministic chemical reactions. And if we are to accept that at face value then we would have no dignity, would we? We'd have no rights. There would be no meaning. We'd be no different than dirt. And so what modern philosophy has done is said, okay, well, in order to make it so that you're not always in despair, you create your own meaning. How about that? Right? So there's no meaning. There's no, there's no ultimate purpose, but, but you have to create it. You create your own meaning. You create your own reality. 
rah, rah, you. And ironically, we are so unoriginal that the only meaning that we can come up with is to say, not the Bible. Right? It's really unadrilled. In attempting to rebel and escape from God and his good order, where do we do immediately? We go back to the baseline and say, not that. Well, what is it then? Well, just not that. The biblical worldview is inescapable, isn't it? There are no accidents in the biblical worldview. All that is has been brought into being by design, and it's all moving towards God's revealed purpose. All that is has been created with humanity as its goal. First Adam, first man, was given all that he needed in order to rule and to have dominion as son of God, as Luke tells us, the one made in God's image and likeness. The sun, moon, and stars were made to serve him. The fish and the birds were, were made to serve him. The beasts were made to serve him. God has given all these plants to him for food and to the animals for food. So ruling over the animals is supposed to be really easy, right? Because God's just feeding the animals. It gives man the privilege of ruling over it all for God's glory. He even gives the man a wife to labor with him in his dominion. All that the man needs, God has provided so that through man, God would be glorified. It is written into creation. That, that is written into creation. Creation itself knows that its purpose is to serve a righteous and holy king who lives in submission to God and gives glory to God. All of creation was made in anticipation of the arrival of that first man and woman who would rightfully rule over it. Everything was made with humanity in mind. Think about that. Sun, moon, trillions and trillions Countless stars, countless galaxies, a universe so big we can't imagine it, God made it all with humanity in mind. And when you're thinking that thought, you're thinking David's thoughts. Because that's what he says in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, Lord, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? David's acknowledging exactly what we're seeing in Genesis. God has set everything in place with humanity in mind, and that's, that's why David looks at it all and says, what's so special about us? Why would God make all of this for us? All of creation is designed by God to flourish under the righteous rule of the obedient sons and daughters of God, ruling and having dominion, and pointing all of creation back to God. That's why Genesis 3 is so tragic. It's all that in that last verse of the song we sang. This is why after Adam's failure to live in submission to God, when Adam fails, all of creation is devastated. All of creation is corrupted by the failure of the king. That's why the Bible repeatedly tells us that all of creation is looking forward to the new Adam, the one who is to come, the new king, the one we call Messiah or Christ. 
in Isaiah 55, is creation is so thrilled at the arrival of Messiah. Look what it says, Isaiah 55, 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills are before you. They're breaking forth into singing, and all the trees of the field are clapping their hands. Why? Why, are, why is creation celebrating? Because the true king is here. The new creation humanity is here. The new Adam who rules in righteousness and holiness is here. And creation is excited. Think of Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In Romans 8, creation is groaning. Creation is aching for the arrival of the sons of God. Creation longs for restoration. Creation longs to be made right with, and the, the, creation longs with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is looking forward to the good and righteous king and those who will rule alongside him. Brothers and sisters, friends, Jesus is the good and righteous king. He is the one who, in his life, proved himself to be the ruler who would rule in submission to God, who would live in obedience to God. He proved himself to be the priest who would make God's name great. He proved himself to be the great prophet who would speak on God's behalf the truth of God's word. All of the corruption that was brought into the world through Adam's sin, the new Adam, the new king, is subduing it rightfully and subjecting it to himself he is reconciling all things. And he brings that reconciliation of all things. He, he begins the restoration by first giving of himself. He gives his body. He gives his blood as his first act of conquering. He conquered sin at the cross so that we could be restored. It all starts at the cross, doesn't it? And so because of the cross, on the first day of the month, we proclaim the power of Jesus Christ. Well, what is a month? What is a day? What is a Sunday? Well, they are phenomena created by God on day four so that we would be reminded of his glory and his grace and his provision for us. So here we are this morning. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And we're reminding one another again of all that God has given us, all that God has provided for us, beginning on day four, beginning on day one, beginning before day one. God is a God of grace and mercy. Let's pray, and then we'll come to the table together. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that even at the very beginning, we see our Savior, we see the need for the one who is to come, we are reminded of why his coming is so good and why it was so needful. Lord, I pray that we would have a right understanding of Christ, that we would have a right understanding of, of who he is, not as the one who just is our ticket to heaven, but as the one who restores all things for your glory, who remakes us 